0: Hello and welcome to another SPAC Insider Podcast. I'm Nick Clayton and this week my colleague Marlena Haddad and I will be speaking with Anil Matthews, founder and CEO of NIR. NIR announced a $754 million combination agreement with Kudain One Acquisition Corp in May. We discuss how NIR has built a data platform capable of tracking the activity of 1.6 billion consumers and how it has grown this platform geographically from the global east to west. Neil also describes the work that goes into protecting and enriching this data to ensure regulatory compliance and drive further insights. He also talks about what it has been like to pull together a SPAC deal amid the market's shifting tides and how NIR plans to put its new share and cash capital to use. Take a listen. And so just to start, Anil, I'd love to get into your background a bit. You are a serial founder, and I think it's worth mentioning because it seems like NIR is very much built off of your experience at Netcode and iMIR. Can you tell us a bit about that journey?
1: Yeah, you're right. I've been a serial entrepreneur for most of my life. I started my first company uh, late 99, uh, early 2000, but all of them deeply rooted in tech. So I'm I'm a product tech guy myself. And uh, the first company I started, which was Netcode, um, in the late 99, was uh, a software solutions company built uh, around providing specialized solutions, typically to customers across the globe. And uh, I exited that in 2007, started a slightly different company which is more around social aspects of things. And this is third company. So this one, uh, you know, Near started in 2012. And yeah, I think it's been an exciting journey. I wouldn't do anything else.
0: Right, yeah, and you mentioned you know the the founding year too, and I think there's may, maybe a perception that a lot of the, the SPAC deals that we've seen with software targets are you know very young, very early companies, but in the re- reality NIR has been around for for a while, and, and you've really you know had a chance to have a few cycles of, of learning and restrategizing as technologies change too. So, just what are some of the big lessons you've learned while building this platform?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We've been we've been around for almost a decade now, and one of the biggest things that we have learned is there's no one size fits all. We started in the eastern side of the world, we started from Singapore, you know, being based out of there, uh, slowly grew towards Australia, New Zealand, other parts of Southeast Asian uh, countries. And the perception is, hey, this is all Southeast Asia, It's, it's in fact, actually multiple countries with multiple cultures and, and intricacies on how to deal with customers and data and technology in each of these countries. So what we learned is we need to tailor our offering, our products, our pricing, our approach to market, everything for each country we need to win in these regions. And that has taught us really well to sort of how to expand to newer geographies efficiently when we were moving westwards from east. So we are one of those companies which actually, you know, grew from east to west rather than the other way around. And that sort of taught us a lot of things because, there's a lot more, I would say, from what we do as a data company, it's a lot more easy to sort of do certain things in the western part of the world, uh, for example, acquire new data. Right? It, it's easier to acquire new kinds of data in, uh, in the US vis-a-vis in Asia, because those kind of data does not even exist in Asia. So we had to so it's not like you can just go and sort of buy some data from there. When it doesn't exist, then you're looking at how do we create and curate this kind of data that is required for us to service our customers. So the challenges have been different in different parts of the world. And that has sort of taught us uh, truly how to be a a global leader.
2: Got it. And then speaking of data, Nir has been able to gather data on approximately 1.6 billion people and over 70 million places. So how does this scale compare to your competitors? And can you talk about how you source this data?
1: Sure, absolutely. I think that's a very good question. One of the our biggest strengths is apart from being global, we are sitting on what we call the largest source of human moment data. And this comes from, um, you know, sort of over the last decade and how we curated this from partners, some of whom are our telcos in, in, in different parts of the world. Some of some of our partners are Wi-Fi providers, but a, a good amount of data also comes from um, apps. So aggregators who are uh, you know, sort of aggregating this consent-based data from apps. And our patented technology allows us to stitch this diverse data types together to understand human moment data. There are two challenges around this. One is when you look at data from multiple sources, the identifiers are different. The kind of data that you would see you know, in, a, in a telco ecosystem is completely different to the kind of data that you would see in an app ecosystem and so how do you stitch them so that's the challenging part second is while you do all this how do you stay privacy compliant because this is you know we're dealing with a lot of data especially data that is that can connect consumers so we need to be really mindful about how we you know sort of stay away from personally identifiable information how we stay compliant in regions very strict regions like european regions which has strict gdpr compliances on what can be done with the data and things like that how do we constantly get consent from consumers to sort of store and use this data and and also have mechanisms to purge and forget data when there is a requirement around this so so it's uh, it's not a trivial problem to solve but yeah like I said it's taken us a decade to build this foundation and and I think that's what we are excited about that now we have this foundation the opportunities are immense we have we're sitting on this, goldmine, I would say, as a platform, which we can now use to build upon.
2: Right. And so you basically just uh, briefly touched upon my next question. So would you be able to talk about the privacy aspect a bit more? Has there ever been any security concerns surrounding your data? And and what sort of compliance practices do you have in place to ensure security?
1: So there are, there are two things, right? One is, of course, internally, we have mechanisms to make sure data is um, the, the way data is bought in, stored, processed, and used are all compliant in each region because each region has different laws and different regulations. That's the easy part, you know, in staying um, compliant with regulators. Now, how do you make sure that there is no sort of breach, and and if there is a breach. How do you ensure that data, if it is comp- compromised, you know, it, is, uh, you know, it does not have any personally identifiable information? So this is the challenging part, you know, because we are storing data in a way that even if somebody gets access to the data, it's just gobbled data. It, it does not make any sense to them because it is all hashed in a way. It is all stored not at a, a level where it can identify a single individual user. When we give out data as well, we don't give out data that, that is at an individual level. It's always at an aggregated level, always anonymized. So that way, there's no way to sort of identify users. So we have not only staying compliant, but we are proactively working on privacy to make sure that we are the good citizens around handling this data. Now also, there are certain use cases that we do not allow when it comes to usage of data, uh, which, which includes around healthcare or you know, credit worthiness and, and policing and, and few other you know, sort of use cases that is clearly mentioned in all our contracts. So that even if the end customer wants to use for some of these use cases, they cannot because we prohibit them from using these just as a good practice, not because we need that as part of the law.
0: Yeah, sure. and and. You know, just kind of looking at it, it's interesting the way in which you have your data points are coming in from this kind of wide spectrum of of places that aren't moving anywhere and people that are moving all the time and figuring out ways of leveraging that. But at the same time, I'm sure it was just fascinating to see all of the behavioral changes that occurred during the pandemic. And just how did the pandemic change your business and how much of that has been lasting change? I mean, I, I imagine for clients, it's still probably harder than before to get foot traffic.
1: Yeah, absolutely. because in effect, what we are looking at, if you look at these patterns, you can actually look at people's behavior around places. So and this behavior, especially during the pandemic, has changed drastically. All the understanding that you had around consumer behavior as a brand or as an enterprise, has gone to a toss. And now, because you know, some of these behaviors have changed permanently. Now brands are sort of struggling to figure out how do, you, how do they keep up with this change in behavior? What is the new kind of behavior that the consumers are looking for? And that's why we see an increased adoption in our data and technology to understand this change in behavior. So the answer to, to your question is pandemic has actually brought an increased demand, in fact, to, to kind of data and kind of insights and analytics that we can provide to these brands because now they are more reliant on data. To come out of pandemic, especially um, verticals that are deal with a lot of these consumer movement, including retail, including tourism, restaurants, or real estate. So these are uh, verticals that we're seeing big traction around.
0: Great, right. and, and kind of getting at that too, the other interesting spectrum within your business seems to be among customers more heavily focused on dealing with the physical world versus the digital space and all of the kind of places in between. So can you get into a bit how your products break down along those and, um, and what are some of the use cases that people might not think about?
1: True. So I think one of the ways to look at it is our universe revolves around a, a single ID system. Uh, so what we're doing is when we spoke about this 1.6 billion Active user IDs, these are unique IDs. So for example, for for you, we might have an ID which is you know a, B, c, d, one, two, three, four, five. So we don't know who you are. We don't store your personal information, but this ID has signals that is associated to that from both the physical and the digital world. The digital world could be your digital world behavior on, around apps, around websites, that you're what you're reading, what you're watching, what you're liking, kind of thing all again in a consent-based approach. Um, The physical world would be where you're seen in the real world, uh, you know, in terms of um, um, which grocery stores you go to, which gas stations you go to, and how far do you travel to go there, and and all, all these, you know, your brand affinity and all this behavior in the real world. Now, these two attributes are stored across this ID. When we work typically with an enterprise, let's say we work with a, you know, hypothetically, let's say it's a, it's a large retailer. The retailer would say, you know, I know A, B, C about my consumers. Can you tell me DEF? Because the biggest challenge for me as a retailer is when they're within my store, we uh, understand them really well. We have sensors, we have cameras, we have POS data, we have CRM data. The moment they walk out of the door, we lose them. So we don't know whether they went to a competition after they walk out of the door. How many times they go there, from where they come, sort of how far do they travel to you know, sort of come to us, all these questions we're not, we don't know much. It's the same challenge in the digital world as well. So you could, you know, when they walk out of the door, you know, in terms of walk out of their website or app, they, they are not able to sort of figure out what is their behavior across their ecosystem, especially with the new practices that Apple has brought in with ID deprecations around. Um, cookies, identification around phase. And so what's happening is brands and enterprises today are finding it very challenging to connect this consumer journey across these spectrums. So that's where we come into picture. So for example, you asked about use cases. So when we work with one of the largest um, media companies out there, what they have is they own a lot of digital property. Now, uh, these are large websites, which is informational and and entertaining in nature. So you don't log in to these websites. You just go read about something and then move on. The problem with that is when you you move from website A to website B, they don't know you're the same user because you didn't log in, they lose you. And that is the disconnect they had before we came into picture. So since we came into picture, we used our ID system, connected all this, And then now we are able to provide them deeper insights in both the physical and the digital world. So digital world, they already knew, but the physical world, okay, now can we tell them how many times their their customers went to an auto showroom? So previously, if they were selling auto enthusiasts to brands based on how many times you read about a car on one of their properties, now they can actually sell more powerful signals to these brands based on how many times these consumers were seen in a real dealership. That is a sort of you know, higher intent to purchase. And with that, they're able to charge more, almost 30, 35% more into on the same data. So effectively what we have done now is help them increase their yield on data. So they're sitting on, you know, let's say 20 million users data. Now they can make more money on the same data without actually increasing the subscriber base itself, the user base itself. So that's the biggest impact. On these kind of uh, technologies.
2: Got it. And then speaking of your customers, can you talk a bit more about your contracts? What have you seen in terms of getting customers deeper and deeper into the platform? And just about how much visibility do you have into future revenue?
1: Yeah, I think that's a very good question. So the way we do, we go to marketers, our strategy has always been land and expand. So there are hundreds of significantly large fortune five hundred uh, you know, Fortune 100 companies that actually is a customer, but we just landed with many of them. And which, so these have significant expansion opportunities. So that's why we're very confident on what the months and years ahead hold on for us, because most of our contracts are annual in nature. So, minimum is one year contract, and some of them are two, three years in contract. We sell it on a SaaS basis where, you know, you have to license our platform on a, at least for minimum a year. And that gives us the visibility of sort of what's going to happen next quarter, next quarter, next quarter. So I think that that's where we're sitting on. So there is one definite expansion opportunity. Second is we have a lot of cross-selling opportunities because we have a, a suite of products where basically one product, let's say we go to, again, you know, in this case, a customer who's, let's say, a retailer in California. They may start with California, but they may expand to New York and and Florida and other other regions. But they also might say, okay, you're helping us do this. Now, can you uh, with with insights and analytics, can you also help us with uh, activation, helping out, helping us reach out to these these consumers as well? So, one of our product actually is connected to the activation platforms like Facebook and. Google and Trade Desk and all these platforms that is standard there, which means this you can easily now look at all the consumers, let's say, who went to my competition in the last 30 days in California, can I reach out to them? So you can curate them easily and then activate them on platform of your choice. So I hope that gives you an idea of sort of how we might start. We might start with insights and analytics, giving you deeper insights on your consumer behavior but also next step is how do I act on it? So so if you look at our full stack, it starts from what we call stitching your data together, enriching it, and then driving insights and analytics and acting on it, and then finally measuring it. And so if I take a step back, if I tell you what, what is the big problem we are seeing today, most enterprises are sitting on huge amounts of data, big or small. But the challenge is, they're not able to derive any meaningful value out of this and there are three key reasons for that number one is most of this enterprise data is in silos it's just spreads all over the place in the examples that i gave you prior you would see that the data is either stored online some are stored offline some are in different databases you know crm data is somewhere else and pos data is somewhere else app data is somewhere else the, the second challenge is most of this data is half baked so the information they have on each consumer is there's missing addresses, missing fields, and missing understanding of their behavior. And the third largest challenge that we have seen is which we think is a trivial issue, but it isn't, is most of these enterprises don't have the right data skills because they're not data companies themselves. They have their you know other, other challenges and businesses. So they have a very lean data team. And so the maturity of understanding of the data is very less. That's where NIA comes into picture. So without technology, First, if you look at the full stack, we would go to the enterprise and say, we can now stitch this disparate data because we have a patent on how to stitch this, because that's how we have been stitching our diverse data together. So now we can stitch your disparate data also. We can enrich it, which means bring in deeper understanding from the physical and the digital world. We can then derive intelligence and show you insights and analytics, help you act on it, and then help you measure the efficacy of that action. So all this is the full stack. But you could enter at any, any stack and expand to other stacks. So depending on what problem you want to solve as an enterprise, and it's different for different enterprises and different brands, right? Because it depends on your maturity level, your priorities, and stuff like that. And that allows us to sort of land with a small problem that you want to solve, but expand across this, this full stack. So there are a lot of companies with seven-figure deals that, you know, that, that we're working with, which actually is this full stack because they have subscribed to all our offerings.
2: And then next, I just want to get into NIRS locations and their involvement in certain regions. You guys have a strong presence in the United States, but um, your materials show that you also have a, a presence spanning the globe. So can you yes. tell us more about your international locations and do you have any plans to expand further?
1: On that, you know, we have our, our biggest presence is in between Los Angeles um, and uh, where Pasadena, where our you know, core office is and Bangalore in in India. So these are the two big hubs that we have. Then we have a a decent-sized presence in in Paris and also a presence in Australia, uh, New Zealand. These are, I would say, the the second largest after these. And then uh, Singapore, uh, a very lean presence, and and Tokyo, a very lean presence. So these are between the development and the the, the technology uh, is developed between uh, Pasadena and Bangalore. Rest all is uh, marketing and sales. So it's a, it's a sort of customer-facing organization in other regions. That's how we are spread across. Our European headquarters is, is in Paris. So from there, we are operating across other regions within Europe, as well as uh, in, you know, London as well. And that allows us to sort of tailor the data to be compliant with the stringent, most stringent laws uh, today around privacy, which is GDPR and so the data is stored locally it is processed differently it is uh, repurposed for for that region while as it might be different kind of like in US we have ccpa compliant but it is you know slightly different differently purposed for that region
0: Great, and we talked about kind of the product sides, but I'm interested in sort of the the internal processes too, a little bit too, and just that great amounts of data come great needs for computing, and with great needs for computing comes a whole lot of R and D investment. And so, you know, how do you yeah. balance those needs? What the market seems to be wanting to see more of these days is cash generation and margins, but you really need to you know invest in order to stay sharp. So, what is your sort of approach to
1: to that question? Absolutely, that's, that's a very good question, and it's, it's it's not easy, right? It's always challenging because. There is a portion of our budget that goes into future growth, investing in what could we do in the next uh, sort of twelve to eighteen months. That's a constant process. There's a setup that we have internally we call near labs, wherein you know we are sort of creating what would hold us uh, sort of what would make sense in in, in down the line. what would, could we derive out of this goal mine that we have, the platform that we have that could address new use cases? and and sort of help us stay ahead of the game. So there's there's a constant investment that's going on, but at the same time, we need to be mindful about how much we want to invest for future versus current needs we want to go deeper in each region. So our current focus is, uh, rather than sort of growing into more markets, focusing on current markets, but going a lot more deeper, deeper, you know, in in each geographies, in in verticals that we are stronger in. So like I mentioned, we we are seeing good traction and very strong in the three R's, the retail, restaurant and real estate and the tourism vertical. So we are going a lot more stronger in that. We're trying to see how we can create flavors of our offering, which is tailored for these verticals as well. You know, currently, it's a lot more horizontal. We want to see how we can go more vertical in this. So, so there is a there has to be a fine balance, but there is always, uh, I would say, a larger percentage of our investment going for um, for current growth and needs vis-a-vis for future. You know, it's very difficult to predict what might be the demand uh, for eighteen months down the line. Look at look at where we are today, and you know, t minus six months right? We never knew how the market's going to be today. And so I think if we had planned a lot and invested a lot for today's market, it wouldn't have been very wise because the markets are uh, where we wanted, or any of us wanted to be today. And so I think we need to be mindful that we don't over invest for, for future growth, at the same time try to run the engine as, as we know now, but at the same time don't want to run out of innovation, don't want to be sort of status quo, as as an organization and sort of loose out on the game as well.
0: Yeah, certainly. And we're we're in an interesting position being uh, you know, with this podcast and that we, you know, we've been able to talk to quant computing firms that are doing spAC deals on this podcast. And so I'm just interested, you know, sort of what on the whole technology side is the most exciting thing you you see coming in terms of new technology? Is it something more on that computing side or more in terms yeah. of the new sources of data inputs that are becoming available?
1: We, we are looking at newer web three technologies and stuff how we can use that within our you know our setup as well because we're dealing with huge amounts of data right one of the reason we have some of the smartest guys working for us is because they, they find it very challenging to work around this huge this the size of data and what we are doing because it's petabytes of data on on a daily basis that we're dealing with and so you know you can imagine if it if you just look at time and space, just pick a coffee shop. And you you took at uh, current time, you know, T zero. There is, let's say 20 people in the coffee shop, right? T plus one, you know, within a minute, there might be two people who walked out and three people who walked in. Now you need to compute that whole thing again. Okay, this was the the, the, the dwell time for these people changed. Also the capacity within that store changed. So understanding people's movement around places, you can imagine And time and space is so complicated. This is just one coffee shop's example across time and space. And I multiply that into millions of places, into millions of people across all these countries. So it's a huge problem. It's a big, big challenge to sort of solve from a computational perspective. And that is what is very exciting for those smart guys as well. So we have our own setup, which we have custom created uh, using a lot of cloud technology as well. Um, but uh, we are also seeing how can newer technologies constantly help us not only really become more efficient in storing this misdata data and processing this misdata, data, but also help us, be, uh, you know, sort of become more cost efficient uh, in terms of doing all this. It is very expensive uh, to do all this in, in a very reasonable ma- manner.
2: And so moving to the SPAC deal itself, NIR has raised many rounds of private capital over the years. How yes. did you come to the decision that now was the right time to go public? And why opt for SPAC specifically rather than an IPO or more private raises?
1: True. We were fortunate that, you know, we have been backed by some of the leading investors of the world, a very marquee name, Sequoia Capital, J.P. Morgan, you know, um, Cisco's of the world and stuff like that. We have now done this for a decade. We have built this foundation, like I mentioned, of this platform that has immense potential. One of the things that we need now is a lot more credibility so that when we actually knock on those doors across uh, a bank in a region that we are not known, you know, how can we open their doors? I think going public would allow us with that credibility and, of course, the currency that we require. To sort of grow inorganically as well, we we have seen that in the last pandemic when there was this, this crisis uh, during, during the 2020s, we have seen that, that there were two things that we did. One is we used that time to build a solid technology because a lot of things were closed and you know moving a bit slower. So we used that time to basically we, we use that crisis to find opportunity and build uh, you know one of our core technologies. Uh, which uh, is become, uh, which is the sort of you know the, this matching technology that I've been talking about, and repurpose that. We also acquired a company during that time. So we've sort of been doing this where we are looking at um, opportunities in crisis, and we think that you know, you know we we have heard a lot of folks telling us maybe this is in you know, the market is not the right time to go public, but but I think we think it's the right time. For us, because it's the same way we're looking at that this is an opportunity in a crisis for us, because if you're able to sort of, we we are a solid business. We have revenues, we have solid unit economics. We have have been there for 10 years. We've been backed by some of the marquee investors. We have raised around 134 million till date. So it's not a typical spank that you would see. We could have gone either ways to your point. We could have done a traditional IPO. We could have done, uh, you know, raised more money privately. But I think going public, gives us the currency and credibility that we need for the next decade of growth. But also, I think going SPAC was probably the fastest route to do so for us. And and especially in this market, I think it is a lot more um, structured approach for us that could take, which would give us more visibility on uh, and more sort of guarantee on how we'll land there.
2: Right. And so once those conversations got going, how did Cluden win you over? And what benefits do you think their team will bring near moving forward?
1: It's absolutely the people. The, the, the Cluden team has amazing folks who basically, um, you know, we look up to. They've been there, done that in different aspects of their life. We have built this company on a strong culture. Many of us have been together for seven, eight years in the company. So we have seen the culture is so important for us and, and Cluden's team fitted it in right there. And you know, in terms of how we think, how we you know, sort of want to take this forward and they were aligned on you know, our values and our philosophy of uh, where we want to be as an organization. So I think it's definitely the people. And I think that's very important, right? Because this is a partnership. And in a partnership, it is very important as you would find investors for yourself that are they the right investors? Are they the right shareholders, the right partners who can be on your side when you know things go great, but when things don't go so great as well? And I think so. That was uh, we spoke to many other uh, SPACs as well during this process. We had uh, you know a f- few good interest around from other SPACs, but we, we chose Cluden just for who is running the show there.
0: Yeah, I'm interested in just you know if you get into just a little bit of the texture of what that process has been like, just because the the market has been so. I mean, it's been a bit of a roller coaster over the last year. Yeah. And so you probably started this process you know late last year or something like that and, and you know and the perceptions I think of SPACs have changed the whole market has gone through its its ups and downs you have potential for new SEC rules of course when you were kind of looking at those different SPACs I mean kind of what were some of the points of differentiation you were seeing there and, and how was your your sort of strategy in dealing with them and what are your thoughts how, how it was was that changing over that process?
1: Yeah. I mean, to be honest, it took a little longer than we thought because we thought SPACs would be uh, a lot quicker than where we are today. But I think, uh, of course, we have filed our S4 now and you know, await SEC comments anytime. So we reached here now, but it was a lot of changes as we moved across the process. Because when we started working with them, things were completely different. The specs were doing amazing. Everything was going great. And then started, things started changing. So we had to adapt to the changes very quickly rather than just say, okay, let's just pull the plug on this. That was an easier thing to do. Let's just pull the plug, go raise private funding and continue our journey. We said, no, we decided to do this. We're going to stick to this. And I think that's where it was a test for all of us as partners coming together on how we'll weather the storm and go through this journey when these changes were bought in, in, in the market. And so we looked at how do we sort of secure a minimum cash, for example because redemptions are high in SPAC, and let's assume that it's going to be 100% for, for a minute, then how does things look? Right. And so we had to work around uh, on all these sort of arrangements, which would allow us and, and sort of give the confidence to our shareholders that this is a done deal. This is going to give us a guaranteed minimum cash when we go. This is also g- going to give us some you know, additional capital if you need to sort of look at some inorganic options and, and so on. So the, the structuring of this was very creatively done. And I think that is kudos to the team that we could come up with structures like this that uh, allowed us to still move forward in a condition, in, in a situation where you know, it wasn't very, very favorable, I would say, in the stock market.
2: Nir has been active with M&A in the past and your materials note that you'd be interested in deploying some of the deals proceeds for inorganic growth. So would the strategy for that be more geared towards adding in new technologies or perhaps capturing some valuable customer bases?
1: Yeah, I think the way we look at it is two things, right? How do we strengthen our mode? The strengthening of the moat um, has two aspects of it. One is strengthening the mode from a technology and a data point of view and strengthening the mode from a geographical point of view. So, so we could look at, okay, hey, are we, we're weak in Japan, let's say, and we want to strengthen our mode there. So that could be one, one way to look at it. So the so regions where we are weaker and there could be opportunities for us to sort of go deeper. Or it could be, hey, we are weaker in understanding these aspects of consumer or these aspects of places. Can we sort of invest in that? So we're continuously looking at these two aspects. And there is a team internally, a co dev team, which is looking at opportunities as we speak. And they have lined up opportunities for us ahead of you know, us going public. So we would be definitely looking at, we are you know, sort of big believers in organic opportunities and growth as well, because we have been there, done that twice. We've acquired a company in Europe. We've acquired a company in, uh, in the US. And so we have, we have seen success, great success out of that. I think we understand what it takes to do that. You know, the cultural nuisances nuisance around that and, and the, the, the synergies that need to be, come in place. So I think we, we know this by now, I could say. And so we definitely want to do some more inorganic acquisitions. Great. Right,
0: and you touched upon it as well, but just before I let you go, do you have an, any update in terms of just the, the timeline of the transaction, uh, let our listeners know kind of when they should be looking out for the, the symbol switch and all that good stuff?
1: Yeah. So uh, we did file our uh, S4 on 1st of July. And now typically we are still looking at going live by Q4, uh, early Q4, hopefully. It, a lot depends on you know, the feedback and how much time it takes uh, for us to get the SEC's blessing. But uh, that's, a, that's a timeline that we're still looking at, which uh, has been the plan for some time. So we are on schedule with that. We don't see any issues around that at the moment. And I think, so hopefully, fingers crossed.
0: <laughs> yep, we're all crossing our fingers in the SPAC market these days, but
1: uh, <laughs> it's a,
0: a very interesting deal at, at an interesting time. We're gonna be really excited to keep watching it. Uh, but in the meantime, yeah, thanks Thank so you. much for being on.
2: Yeah, Thank you, it was,
0: it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.